0: I'm so used to saying at the beginning of our services that it is good to see each of you and uh, I suppose it would be interesting to be able to look into your living rooms as you are able to look into this sanctuary but that's not uh, the case and is above the capacity of the technology we're using at the moment but should I say welcome to our live stream. On uh, this, the third week under present circumstances. and the next few days, we're going to be sending out some emails uh, listing certain changes that have taken place uh, since our last update that's over a week old now. But this having to do with the most recent um, orders from our uh, state and local government having to do with stay at home and... um, in God's providence, we've been able to maintain our ability to do this that we're doing right now and uh, the the language is there and it's clear uh, for faith-based uh, ministries to be able to produce uh, this live stream uh, but with minimal staff and using all the customary uh, and and um, reasonable um social distancing here we're, we're spread out those of us that are considered uh, essential and folks praise the lord for that to be able to do and continue to do what we do um i really do believe that the lord is beginning to teach us those lessons that i think many of us knew were coming as these things have changed so quickly and uh, the one lesson that I think may serve us well for the rest of our lives, and I hope we learn it, we learn it well, and we never forget it, and that would be to take our privilege to gather together for granted. I think that is what the Lord's been working on, all of us, and myself included. Even if it's just been three weeks, it feels like a long time, and uh, we miss you, and we long for that time, and ability to all be back together in this room. And that's one reason why I'm glad to be able to continue to do that in this room, which has been set apart for generations for the specific purpose of preaching and teaching God's Word. I I, I prefer to stand behind this box right here, which is set aside for that very purpose. And um, again, to thank the Lord. And um, I'm sure it's a matter of prayer Uh, that we've been able to continue to do it. So, let's be faithful in the basics and uh, do the best we can with what we've got. And for right now, that's taking our Bibles and opening them up. And uh, we'll continue to study as we've studied. And uh, we're in John chapter 12, where we left off last week. We actually read through the first portion of John 12 um, to tie that in with our study last week. And where last week the comparison, of a very vivid contrast, was between Caiaphas, the high priest that year, that Jesus was killed. And through political expediency, he thought it best that one man die instead of the entire nation. And then that was contrasted with what Mary had done, very extravagant gift of worship. Well, this week, we look at another contrast that was there within what we read last week. So let's read that together. We'll ask for some help, and uh, then we'll put these pieces together a piece at a time. This is verse 1, John chapter 12. Six days before the Passover, Jesus therefore came to Bethany, where Lazarus was, whom Jesus had raised from the dead. So they gave a dinner for him there. Martha served, Lazarus was one of those reclining with him at table. Mary therefore took a pound of expensive ointment made from pure nard and anointed the feet of Jesus and wiped his feet with her hair. The house was filled with the fragrance of the perfume. But Judas Iscariot, one of his disciples, he who was about to betray him, said, Why was this ointment not sold for 300 denarii? And given to the poor. He said this not because he cared about the poor. But because he was a thief. And having charge of the money bag. He used to help himself to what was put into it. Jesus said. Leave her alone. So that she may keep it for the day of my burial. For the poor you always have with you. But you do not always have me. Let's pray. Father in heaven. We thank you for your word. We thank you for its gift. We thank you for the ability to gather together as we are. Lord, teach us from your word. Teach us through each other. But Lord, may the word of your scriptures be the final authority in our lives. Help us to understand it as we understand it. Help us to obey it. And we ask all this in your precious name. Amen. Well, chapter 12 resumes the story that began with the raising of Lazarus. And John gives us the timestamp here, if you noticed, right there in verse 1, six days before the Passover, uh, which puts us the day before Jesus' arrival in Jerusalem, which is otherwise known as the triumphal entry. And being just weeks away from Holy Week or Easter... Uh, These are very familiar themes, but that marks the beginning of the final week of Christ's ministry here on earth before his death, his burial, and his resurrection. Uh, Jesus has returned to Bethany, we learn here, along with his disciples for a dinner that was given in his honor. It could almost be confused that it was in honor of Lazarus. No, it was in honor of Jesus. Jesus. And just to reread through there, six days before the Passover, Jesus comes to Bethany, Lazarus is there. He was the one who was raised from the dead. They gave him a dinner there. Martha served. Lazarus was one of those reclining with him at table. Now the word they, which described those who had put this dinner together, um, they're not mentioned. Uh, We're not told who the they are. It's not defined. So we assume that that's Mary and Martha who put this together. And Lazarus may even, um, might even be coming out of hiding in order to do this. But then if we check with the other gospel um, records of this, we learn that this actually takes place in the house of Simon the leper. Who was Simon the leper? Well, at some point, I think it's obvious that he was a leper. Whether or not he continues to be a leper, probably not. It seems likely that he's here. And it seems likely that Jesus had healed this man. And like so many of us who are defined by our problems, I don't know if you've ever thought of it that way, but usually we'll refer to each other based on certain personality traits or uh, even... Things that we carry around with us that we talk about all the time, but this man's known for his problem, Simon the leper. But if he's here at all, it means that he's no leper no longer, because they weren't able to have anything to do with people that were not lepers. And who was he? We're not told. Um, But it's within the realm of possibility that he could be the father of Mary, Martha, and Lazarus. Some have speculated. That's about all we can do. But it would answer some of the uh, mystery around this family that we know very little about and wondering who's in charge of the home. And a side note, it's kind of uh, remarkable to think of how often Jesus was asked through his ministry to join people for a meal. I don't know if you've ever considered that, but it seems to be routine. And a lot of the things that we learn about what Jesus had said to different groups of people or lawyers uh, or the the Pharisees, and he was always getting, uh, he was always being accused of eating with sinners. And it's interesting how many times he actually took people up on these invitations, knowing that he was privy to the motivations behind those invitations to begin with. And for this one occasion and the other that preceded it in the home of Mary and Martha, these two seem to be the only ones in Scripture that weren't in some form or another a setup or an outright trap to catch Jesus in His words. This one was out of simple hospitality. And in that way, it seems to be set apart. So what do we see? Martha is serving... And that's that's normal for what we know of her. And what's interesting here is that it isn't even her house. I don't know if you've ever had to serve or put on a dinner in someone else's house with someone else's uh, utensils or their kitchen or the way their cabinets are laid out. This was probably no small thing. And if we were to compare it to the other dinner where we met Martha... And as far as we know, and there could have been more, but as far as we know, it was Jesus, Lazarus, Mary, and herself. Four people which precipitated her going to Jesus and complaining um, that Mary was not helping her and that it wasn't right. Well, in this situation, she's hosting Jesus, his 12 men, Lazarus, possibly Simon, her and her sister. If you add all that up, there's 17 people. But in this instance, there's absolutely no record of any complaint from Martha. But a lot has changed since that first event until now. So before we go any further, especially before we read again verse 3, let me mention where we're going with all this. In a brief mention a while ago, the previous contrast was between Caiaphas and Mary. The contrast that we're meant to look at here, the the way that John seems to narrate the story, it's as if he's displaying two separate pictures. Two pictures that are almost completely at odds with one another. And these two pictures are the actions of Mary and the attitude of Judas. And I'm not sure if you noticed the first time we read through it, there's just one verse given over to what Mary did, even though you probably got at the heading of chapter 12, Mary anoints Jesus at Bethany. But there's actually five verses given over to what Judas has to say about it. Now, what Mary did is what's remembered. We'll get to that later. But what Judas has is there just by way of John's narration to show us that Incredible difference between the attitudes of these two people. Let's read verse three once more just to make sure we have it in our mind. Mary, therefore, took a pound of expensive ointment made from pure nard and anointed the feet of Jesus and wiped his feet with her hair. The house was filled with the fragrance of the perfume. That's the extent of verse three. So what did Mary do and why did she do it? We'll do the same thing Uh, For Judas. Each in turn. And then we'll ask ourselves the question at the end. Which one do we more resemble? Are we more like Judas? Or are we more like Mary? And of course you know which you'd like to be. No one ever. uh, No one ever says I'd like to be like Judas. I don't remember even meeting a man named Judas. Uh, I've met Jude's. Uh, I've met Mary's, but not Judas. But this morning, I think we're going to be surprised, perhaps even shocked, at how most of us are going to get this wrong. We're going to have more in common with Judas. And woefully short of what we see on display with Mary. And we'll have plenty to ask our Lord to help us with. So what did Mary do and what did she Why did she do it? Just some background. Every time we see Mary, she's at Jesus' feet. You may have heard this. Uh, Just like Andrew, every time we see him, he's bringing someone to Jesus. Well, every time we see Mary, it's always the same. Back when we first read of her from another gospel on a good day, when Jesus was teaching, she was at his feet listening. But on a very bad day, we learned from John's gospel just weeks ago, when her brother was dead and her heart was breaking... She was at Jesus' feet crying. And on this day, a day of uncertainty, where Jesus' life is certainly in danger, we're going to find her at his feet again, but in this case expressing worship the likes of which we've not yet seen. So what she's using here, John is specific to tell us that this was a very costly perfume made of pure nard. Nard was a rosy-colored, sweet-smelling perfume that came from the root and spike. That's why sometimes you'll see in some translations it's called spike-nard. This comes from a plant that grew in the foothills of the Himalayas. And there's no mention of where Mary got this perfume. There's all types of cultural references as to why one might keep it. It was either as a dowry or as uh, used in a a burial Setting, but as to why she had it and where she got it and if she paid for it or if it was given to her all of that is speculation we we really are not told now what she did with this and her anointing jesus feet and the way she wiped it with her hair and how much of it was spilt we'd like to have a lot more details because we could we could answer much of our curiosity here and even taking the other passages from other gospels there's not a lot more information that we can put together but we're going to learn in chapter 13 that to attend to one's feet was the task of the lowliest slave when Jesus washes the feet of the disciples there's a protest you shouldn't be doing this So for her to do this and to anoint his feet was to position herself as low as a slave could position oneself. And then for her to untie her hair in public just was not done. And if it was, um, it was looked on with disfavor. And with all that we've got here, there is no way... To make any of what Mary did normal. Um, Just to try to put it as basic as as I can. This is weird. Uh, I heard one pastor say. Well let's go to the Greek and find out what's there. He said. The Greek tells us it's weird. Um, Culturally speaking. The things that she did. If one was there. And was witness to it all. Uncomfortable would be the, under, the 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 understatement um, to try to figure out what is going on. So the protest that we see in some sense is justifiable. But before we get to that, let's look a bit more. Um, and I had written down and had spent some time in studying this week to maybe give some of the more popular uh, f- commentary on perhaps how we could account for some of these things and, and, and unwind the, the weirdness of the situation. But one possibility that I read that thought may be more suitable than others involved perhaps Mary's instinctive reaction to there being more perfume spilled than she had intended and the idea of breaking the alabaster box john doesn't tell us it's alabaster that it was broken but maybe some was to be used then and some to be kept for later i have no idea but what seems to be clear is that the amount of it and it's a pound which a roman pound is about 11 ounces that way more than needed to be used we just kind of put a couple of little dots, don't we, when we're putting on cologne or perfume? We don't use the whole bottle. Now, if a, if, if it was used in a funeral setting on a body, it'd be wrapped in the, the, the cloth, then you would use a large amount, but this is different. So maybe her instinctive reaction to having spilled more than she might have meant to was to use the thing that she had At her immediate disposal. And that would have been her hair. To maybe mop up the excess. Again that's just speculation. Let's be sure. Here is what I think is probably what we should take to heart. And just leave the rest to curiosity. What she did. She did. Because she didn't have words for such things. This is one of those things that uh, there aren't words that, that are extravagant enough at our vocabulary's disposal that would match up to the actual thing that she had done where she used this very expensive perfume. So we keep that in mind. There's no evidence, however, just to make sure we... Don't leave any stones unturned. That Mary or anyone else understood before the cross that Jesus had to die. What she did here was meant to be an act of costly, humble devotion. But I think kind of like Caiaphas. There was more going on than she knew. Caiaphas had no idea to the extent to which he had prophesied. And I don't think anybody in the room actually knew when Jesus says she's done this against my burial, how close it actually was. Though I think Mary was infinitely closer to picking up on the distress of our Lord's heart when later he would talk about that very thing. I think she read his face, his body language more so than anyone else in the room. And let's not forget the last detail that John gave us. The house was filled with the fragrance of the perfume. Now this is why I love reading John so much. Because that right there, that detail has no other purpose than to invite us to be present in the story by use of our imagination. Right? Like we'd been there, like we could smell as the perfume went everywhere. I don't know if you've ever broken a bottle of perfume or uh, how a little bit of something being cooked in a house can just fill the whole thing up, for good or for bad. But that he says the fragrance here filled the house, the fragrance of the perfume. I believe our sense of smell is the most powerful trigger of memory among our senses. I have that on uh, some scientific articles that I read thinking through this, but... You be the judge. Can a smell take you back in time? Uh, Like a song can take you back in time? Um, This past week, among the long list of things I had to do, scrambling, trying to get ahead of who knows what will be asked of us uh, in time, I had a problem with my truck and needed a valve cover. So I went over to the Ford place to get it. I had to order it first, then go back and get it. But to go to the parts department, right up the road here at the Ford place, you have to go through the, the shop as well. And no sooner than I'd stepped into there, the smell of that shop is no different than it was 20 years ago when I worked at a different shop. It was also a Ford dealership. But it, it's the same. It's the same one. I mean, I, I'm back in a place where I considered it to be my first real job, because I had a uniform and uh, my name on my shirt and on my jacket. And uh, though I, I was employed to clean the place, I looked like any of the rest of the mechanics. And uh, if I got my job done, I could run parts or do something exciting, like some of the low-grade mechanical work. And I did change a lot of oil. But I was official. Ford Lincoln Mercury all on a smell but it took me it was like a time machine and I, I, the same is true I'm sure with all of you the, the the certain recipes that your folks cook over the holidays or certain places that you've been or the way your grandparents house smells even pieces of furniture or your coat that was there that you forgot and you take it home and it, it's in it it's it's, it's like it's, it's like a, a spirit that's possessed whatever comes into that home it, it just permeates everything John knows what he's doing here and if we were to carry this even further if it's meant for our imagination I suppose we could ask our question ourselves the question spiritually speaking what do we smell like um, if this is meant to cause us to associate the smell of the perfume with the act of worship on the part of Mary, what does the room that we've been in smell like after we've been there and gone? Is it a pleasant smell? Is it a stench? You know, uh, when Paul is telling us in Titus that, that, that the way we act and carry ourselves adorns the gospel and the, the, the worship that we bring to the Lord is a sweet-smelling savor, um, that'd probably be a good question. Are, are, are we perfumed? Do we care about such things? This is a perfect place to switch over to asking the question, what did Judas do? Or what did Judas say, and why did he say it? What does Judas smell like in this story. We know what the feet of Jesus smell like. We know what the hair of Mary smells like. Look at verse 4. But Judas Iscariot, one of his disciples, he who was about to betray him, said, Why was the ointment not sold for 300 denarii given to the poor? He said this not because he cared about the poor, but because he was a thief and having the charge of the money bag, he used to help himself to what was put into it. Now just to draw a line in the sand here between Mary and Judas. The enormity of the offense of Judas against our Lord is brought out by John setting two statements side by side. They're right there in verse 4. Judas Iscariot, one of his disciples who was to betray him. I, I, I don't know that that you could color it up with any more dramatic suspense than that. A disciple who is about to betray Jesus. And John tells us again, this is not the only time, and it seems to be a habit of his when it's mentioned, to tell us that this is the one who would betray him. But that doesn't mean at all that any such knowledge at the time existed with John while these things are happening. That's all from hindsight. That would take time. In fact... This is the one place out of all the Gospels, aside from the betrayal, that anybody has anything bad to say about Judas at all. He was quite the, uh, the Academy Award for his acting role. And although Judas was one who speaks here, doubtless others had the same thought. Mark tells us as much, even among the other disciples. The objection that Judas raises has a certain plausibility to it. On the surface, surface, it's actually reasonable. How so? Well, John goes out of his way to emphasize the cost of it. He quotes the sum of 300 denarii. That's the plural of denarius. Denarius which was the value of the perfume. And I did some study here and found out that it's probably best to understand the value of this not according to a modern-day equivalent. Even if we're talking about the silver coins here, an actual denarius made out of silver. Okay, what does that weigh? And what's the exchange rate of today's worth of the same amount of weight of silver? That's not the best way to look at it. The best way to look at it would be Actually, according to wages and purchasing power. Because all that stuff moves around, but right here and, and, and or right there and then. The wasness, not the isness here. What could you do with that amount of money? Because it, it is strange with supply and demand, uh, even if, if that could be reliable, what we actually assign is as worth to certain things. Uh, it was also interesting to go on Google and try to figure out what the most expensive perfume is. It's about $12,000 per ounce. Um, and then there was one that was more expensive. It was actually a million-dollar perfume, but it was mostly a million dollars because it was made for some type of museum, and the amount of diamonds that were attached to the, the lid of the container itself was what made it so valuable. Um, I kind of doubt that it's actually worth a million dollars. Especially to the average person. But one denarius was the daily wage of a common day laborer in this culture. So if you've got 300 of those. And just take 365 days in a year. Minus the Sabbaths and Holy Days. Which you wouldn't work or wouldn't get paid for. 300 denarii would roughly be a year's worth of earning. And let's just give it a number. Let's, let's say it's $40,000 that a day laborer could make in a year's time. Again, on the surface, Judas seems to have a morally defensible argument. He raises the flag, what about the poor? You could feed a lot of poor people with that. This is not the first time... Someone has sanctimoniously hidden his agenda behind the sound of what about the poor? Um, No more than, uh, than we try to give kids a hard time about not eating their food because there are children that are hungry. When really, if we were examined in our hearts, are we more worried about those children that are hungry or that our kids eat their food that we made so we don't have to throw it away? This was not Judas's heart. But hearing it in the room among the rest of the people, I think he might have had some to agree with him. This is a costly waste of resources that could be used another way and probably for the moral greater good. Not sure. But it seems to stick. John takes us aside and explains his true motivation, though. He was a thief. And that bag that he was responsible for, he had pilfered, even though it had been trusted to him. So, with that said, and time getting away from us, who do we have more in common with? I think we've got enough now that we can start drawing some conclusions as we move toward the end of the passage. If we were standing there, If we had seen the whole thing, if we had been uncomfortable, if we had on our our exchange rate worth of customary understanding to see that what she is doing is just not at all what normal people do, if we'd been standing there, would we have been drawn to Mary's act of worship? ridiculously extravagant gift poured out, used up, never to be used again? Or would we be with a group of people that are uncomfortable with such things? I'm having to say, I think if I'd have been there, I'd have probably been wondering what is is wrong here, maybe with her. I think it's a good thing to give the benefit of the doubt to these people as we read this. But the, the trouble with it all is flushing our mind of all the things that we know about the story that they didn't. Let's just imagine that we don't. We're seeing all this the first time. And if Judas was under his breath and standing right near us and maybe it's us that's standing there and he leans over to say, you know how much that costs? Do you know that's pure nard? That right there is about a whole year's worth of salary. That could have been sold. That could have been used another way. I mean, would, would, would we have wholesale just say, no, not true, not at all. You're way off, Judas. Judas no. Uh, everything he's saying makes basic sense. It's by definition an extravagance and perhaps even a waste. But here's what Jesus says about it. Leave her alone so that she may keep it for the day of my burial. For the poor you always have with you, but you do not always have me. And here's what I think is the key to unlock the difference between a Judas and a Mary. And it'll unlock us either. Tell us which side we're on. Because the most amazing thing that was said in this whole passage is what Jesus says here. And it's the words, leave her alone. And it's not necessarily to put the focus on his taking up for this woman, which he's doing. But how he can say this. Because he's saying to Judas, all of what you have just said is incorrect. You leave her alone. And then he he goes on to elaborate on what he means by saying leave her alone. She's kept this up for the day of my burial. The poor you always have with you. If the poor is what you're worried about, you'll never have any lack of a supply of poor people to give money to. But you will not always have me with you. And here again... If we just draw out the ramifications of this. Judas' expiration date, as far as his time and his access to Jesus, is shorter than any of the rest of them. He doesn't know this. But Jesus does. So what is Jesus saying by what he is saying? He's saying, I'm worth it. I'm worth a paycheck poured on my feet. I'm worth the extravagance this woman has gone to. That is what Mary understood and what Judas did not. Mary knew the worth of Jesus. Even in her mind, she couldn't get anywhere close to grasping the true meaning of the worth of Jesus. But she was a lot closer than Judas and perhaps anybody else in the room. Uh, If we go to Matthew 26, where we're reading the same story, Jesus says, Truly I say to you, wherever this gospel is proclaimed in the whole world, what she has done will also be told in memory of her. Nobody's going to forget this. And the thing that would make Mary unforgettable, as Jesus says, is this extravagant adoration, which was the very thing that made everyone in the room uncomfortable and what was her contribution to the ages if we just put it in the terms of the dissenters standing there in the room well it was an extravagant waste that's what Mary gave the world what at the moment made sense to no one what if the disciples had understood would have made all the difference they didn't understand and I don't think we do either because we don't act like Mary I don't act like Mary I don't know too many people that act like Mary I I don't know that type of extravagant waste in the culture we live in now I know of faithfulness and devotion and I know of men and women who give of themselves put others first are used up in the service of others. If you add all that together, I suppose it amounts to that. And much more than a year's wages in the form of a perfume, maybe a whole life worth of service. But as far as condensing that all down to something that would make everyone feel uncomfortable, I, I, I don't think I've witnessed that much in my life. Is that what Jesus is calling for? Perhaps not. But what he's saying is that such a thing will never be forgotten. I could get into big trouble here. And I thought I'd I'd just venture some of it. But just to consider the way in which we carry ourselves. And what's important to us. How we set our priorities. How we spend our time, our money, and our resources. how uh, How we run our homes. I think that this culture is set up intrinsically to, to not get this if, if, if anyone else never gets it. But these last three weeks and maybe the next three or, or months, whoever, however long it might take, might give us a clue but I, I think probably chief among all of those that, that abuse these things are, are, are parents. And uh, for all the most noble reasons, the idea that we would spend so much to make sure our kids have the best of what this world has to offer, I think we're precariously perched on the edge of danger where we might actually at the same time be teaching them to view worship as a waste because comparatively does not our culture value youth and opportunity and do we not so often trade gold for dirt and I could give examples here but they'll sting me and you Things where where we could be storing up gold and treasure in heaven. We exchange for the wood, hay and stubble, the the dirt of this world. Pumping into our kids this position for success. And the priority to which we do that, we might actually just smother out completely. Something to the tune of elaborate, extravagant worship. Worship. I mean, isn't that what went on here? What is she doing? That's a waste. Don't do that. Use it somewhere else. Well, let's move on. Matthew and Mark tell us that Judas went directly from this dinner. If you read it in the other gospel accounts, it flows from one paragraph to the next. He left this dinner having been embarrassed by Jesus who told him to leave her alone. And he went and made his arrangements with the Jews to turn Jesus over for a price. How much did Judas get for selling out Jesus? 30 pieces of silver. Now again, we're not told exactly, but it's likely that those silver coins were the same. A denarius. So what we've got here, the betrayal of the Son of God took place for one-tenth the price of Mary's extravagant gift. So the exchange rate between love and betrayal is ten to one. And if we were to start adding up the ways in which we've sold out Jesus for less than that, to fit in or to get what we wanted or to get where we wanted or to have something that wasn't ours that we weren't supposed to have that we know we're not and could ruin our whole lives, destroy relationships, but we, we do those things. And how many times have we ever got caught with our hand in the bag? I'm not saying necessarily extorting money from the church that you serve or making change in the offering plate and taking out too much. That's not it. But if the bag of resources that are available to the the church, the gathered church, all the perks and benefits, meant to be used on others, but we use them ourselves, or meant to be used... By the Lord to distribute as he sees fit. I think we could probably find a a violation or a hundred uh, for each of us. Mary, however, did seem to put it together in advance, though. That it was perhaps the last time she would be in the same place with Jesus like this. So with her, no price was too high and no loss was too great in order to show him what she feels. Judas, on the other hand, and this is the final comparison or contrast of the two, frustrated in his expectations and selfish motives, he determines that Jesus' cause is headed for failure and he quickly finds other means of securing his own self interests by meeting with the chief priest and really, as it seems, reaching the point of no return. Now, I believe that John has intended that we, that we look at these two pictures in contrast. And that we see the difference in the two. And that an understanding of Jesus' worth is what makes that difference. But I think the real depth to which that goes is not not completely told in this story. What we're seeing are, are symptoms of what's going on. Where Jesus talked about the actual cause, the actual light or darkness within a person's soul that would show itself in what Mary did or what Judas has done. If we were to rewind back to the discussion with Nicodemus at night, in fact, it's probably John's commentary on that discussion. Though the words are in most red letter Bibles in red. Verse 20 of John 3. For everyone who does wicked things hates the light and does not come to the light lest his works should be exposed. We've just seen an example of that. That'd be Judas. Verse 21. But whoever does what is true comes to the light so that it may be clearly seen that his works have been carried out in God. We've seen that. And that would be Mary. So John is, is put together, and the way that the evangelist narrates, the book clears up as we read what is veiled in mystery in the prologue. That in the beginning was the Word, the Word was with God, the Word was God. And how that He made all things, without Him nothing was made that was made. How in verse 18, He's going to be the one to show us the Father, and so forth. And then all this business of light and darkness and coming into the world and not being received by the world and them not knowing the light and loving darkness. These types of things are now taking on flesh we're being able to see them. And it seems as if different parties are, 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 are playing their final hand. We had Caiaphas last week and the Sanhedrin resolving to make sure that Jesus is gone. To put Him to death. End of the road for them. With Judas here, he's gone down the road to take the 30 pieces of silver. That's the end for him. Though there are other people that are believing. And they're using the word here to describe that belief that has some weight to it. The belief that Jesus can believe in. That's being used. So as we get toward the last week, as the drama is, heighten, is, is, is more heightened and building, the tension is building, it's all moving toward this resolve. John is going to put it to us point blank where do you stand do you believe this and I suppose that's not too early to begin asking those questions today as we wrap this up if you do believe does it show maybe not like Mary but would people know enough evidence to accuse you of being someone that loves the Lord is your life a waste on Jesus that's a good time to take stock of such things and again it's just backward than the way our culture thinks but would anyone that knows you say you know what all they do is just pour out the best of themselves on the altar of God's service to others. Here's a good one. Would your kids say the same? That's the one I didn't want to write down. Because I don't know what mine would say. I hope they'd say it. And if I asked them, they'd have to say it because daddy's asking them, right? But do they know it in their heart? What they think's in my heart. And is there such a thing as too much sacrifice for Jesus? There's one thing, I, I, there's a line from one of the commentators. You've heard me quote from G. Campbell Morgan before. He's one of my favorites. And this line that he wrote, I questioned when I read it the first time. And I thought, well, you'd need to qualify that because uh, I don't know that you mean it in, in categorically. But the more that I studied for this and the more I was beat up by it, Uh, the more I was inclined to agree with Campbell Morgan. He said, I would rather be in succession to Mary of Bethany than to the whole crowd of the apostles together. Now God gave the apostles His words. We've read them today. But to know Jesus the way she knew Him and to freely express that as she did It's something I don't know that I see in any of them. The Lord knows this business. And he knows each of our frames. But she understood what Jesus was worth. And to her he was everything. May that be said of us. Let's bow in prayer. Father in heaven. We thank you for our time together this morning. And. Lord, our ability just to gaze on pictures in Scripture and to be corrected by them as we consider them. Lord, may You give us the freedom to be able to tell You what we think of You. And Lord, may You give us, through the opening of our eyes, the ability to see You as You are, May we take full advantage of the Holy Spirit that interprets our groanings to be something audible and meaningful to you so far and removed as we are and because of our sins. Lord, help our unbelief. Lord, bring us to the very same place where we must decide, same as these people have, have decided or are Weighing out the evidence. These things have been written so that we might believe. But Lord, I ask that you continue to bless the homes represented by those who have tuned in. Lord, bless their time together. And may you use the added time they have together perhaps to build, build up their families. Build them up in love and encouragement in the scriptures and what matters. And Lord, give us ideas. Creativity to know how to take that and pour it all on your feet. Thank you for blessing Wake Chapel. And thank you for those others who would join us as guests. Lord, bring us all back together at your time and in your choosing. And Lord, until then, may your word be understood and obeyed. We ask all this in your precious name. Amen. But let me close. By reading to you a benediction, and this is from the 13th chapter of the book of Hebrews. This is verse 20 and 21. Now may the God of peace, who brought again from the dead our Lord Jesus, the great shepherd of the sheep, by the blood of the eternal covenant, equip you with every good thing that you may do his will